Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the Side Hustle Success Podcast. Um, I'm your host Stephen Haunts and on today's episode I'm here just by myself, so Kevin's off busy running um, Still Beam Calculator. Um, but in this bonus episode I just want to address a lot of questions that have been asked um, to me about my work for Pluralsight. So I've had a huge amount of questions about it and kind of the questions don't really fit a lot of the themes that we've talked about on the main show. So I thought it'd be a good idea just to do a special episode about it because there seems to be quite a lot of interest in you know what Pluralsight is and what I do for them. So that's what this episode is going to be about. So my purpose for this show is to not just answer specific questions, but I've kind of grouped all the questions together that I've been asked, and I'm going to try and construct it into a narrative about the work I do for Pluralsight. And then at the end, I just have some questions which didn't quite fit, which I'll answer separately. And so what this will mean is that anyone who is interested can just come listen to this episode. Anyone who asks me questions in the future about what it is I do for Pluralsight, I can just also direct them towards this episode. But first of all, let's start off by talking about who Pluralsight actually is. And Pluralsight is a large company based in the US, uh, based in Utah, near Salt Lake City. And they're an on-demand video training platform. So a way I like to describe is, is they're like Netflix for IT training. Uh, they started off by doing mostly software development courses, but they've branched out into quite a lot more than that. So there's courses for software development, leadership, various different soft skills, and creative courses like you know how to use Photoshop, Logic Pro, and all that sort of thing. And as well as offering on-demand video training, they have um, courses that are split into learning paths. So they're like defined curriculums that you can follow, as well as lots of really cool assessment um, tools. So you can go in and assess yourself against a certain set of skills and technology and then Pluralsight will help you fill those gaps in your knowledge. So the way it works, and as I say, it's a bit like Netflix for software development training. Um, the way it works is you pay, either as an individual or as an organisation, you pay a monthly subscription, and then that gives you access to the entire library. I mean, the library is huge. I think there's over six or 7,000 courses in the library now, of which, at the time of writing, I've authored 15 of them, and I've got a few more coming out by the end of 2018, which I'm quite excited about. Signing up with Pluralsight is a bit more like a traditional book deal. So, you know, with a book deal, you might sign an agreement with a publisher, then they might sign you up for a specific book or a series of books, or they might have you in perpetuity as an author with them. So Pluralsight is kind of the same. So you have to go through an auditioning process, and that process is there for you to kind of work out what the process is and whether you think it's going to work for you, but also for Pluralsight to see whether you're going to be good enough to be an author on their platform. Then once you pass that um, audition process, you then sign an authoring agreement, which then you know gives you the ability to, to, to construct courses for Pluralsight. And then you pitch um, individual courses, which goes through like a, a pitching process with the company. 
And if they say yes to a course, you go to a full proposal, sign a contract, and then you deliver that course. So I'm going to discuss kind of that whole process from audition through to actually creating and releasing a course. Because it's a lot of work. There's probably a lot more that goes on behind the scenes than what you might think. So a bit about my own journey. So I've been working with Pluralsight for nearly five years. It'll be five years in June 2019. And for about three and a half years of that, I was writing Pluralsight courses whilst working a full-time job. So the time I spent on Pluralsight was done in the evenings. So I had to give up a lot of my own time to do this, which was fine, but it was a huge amount of work. I mean, I won't lie, after I delivered my first course, I seriously questioned whether I'd actually want to do another one. Uh, but in the end, I decided to do another one and actually found the second course was easier. And then the whole process kind of got easier the more I did. But that first course did kind of scare me a little bit because it was a lot of work, a lot more work than I was expecting. So when you want to become an author, you go through an audition process. And effectively, what that means is they're going to ask you to produce kind of like a 10 minute Pluralsight course. So you'll be given like a slide template and some fonts some instructions and guidance about what they want, but you can essentially do a course on whatever you want. Well, I assume it's still on whatever you want. It was when I did it. And that course has to have, you know, a very defined beginning, middle and end. You know, you have to tell a complete story in that 10 minutes. So the person who watches it has to come away learning something. And with that audition process, I can't remember how long I took to do it, but I think I had about three weeks to deliver it. And I wrote what I was going to do. I built the slides, I wrote the script. I spent an insane amount of time rehearsing, recording that um, audition before I actually recorded the final thing. Because what you want is your narration to kind of sound fluid and not forced and robotic, which is very hard to do when you're reading a script off the screen. So you want lots of uh, variance in your voice. You want it to sound quite active and engaged so that people will actually want to carry on listening to you. So the last thing you want is for your voice to sound like a robot and very monotone because people will get very bored with it like I'm doing right now. That's not what you want. Um, but that is kind of a lot of people's default style when they start reading off of a script. So that took a lot and lot of practice to do, um, which I think I've got quite good at now, but it was certainly quite difficult to achieve. So with the audition process, um, I delivered the audition. Uh, I think I did it in two or three weeks, I can't remember exactly. And there was a little wait while they assessed it. And then they came back with a whole load of suggestions and bits I had to redo. Personally, I think they were testing to see what my attitude to being challenged was like. You know, am I going to be okay to collaborate, potentially redo things, you know, and work with them? So it's kind of like a, a mini peer review. So that came back. There was some stuff I had to do to change the course slightly. I think it pretty much ended up in me re-recording the whole audition. Um, I went through that process, resubmitted it, another little wait while they assessed it and discussed it, and then they came back and said, yes, you're in. And they sent me the offering agreement, which was both exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. Um, partly, partly the reason why it was terrifying is because before I became an author of Pluralsight, I was actually a customer of theirs. I think I used them at a previous job for about two years. I was constantly watching courses on there. So I had lots of people on there that I looked up to, you know, people like Sean Wildermuth, Scott Allen, Troy Hunt, you know, just to name a few, but lots of people whose courses I watch. And now I'm kind of been invited onto the same platform that they use to talk about what they do. So that was quite daunting. 
you know, imposter syndrome kicked in quite big style at this point. But I got through the audition and I signed the authoring agreement. So that agreement basically states that you're now an author for Pluralsight. Any courses you produce for them, you know, obviously become the property of Pluralsight because it goes onto their platform. Just to finish off on the audition process, so the kind of equipment I had to use. So they don't expect you to spend a lot of money to produce the audition. So there's no expectation to do that, but you are going to need a microphone of some description. Now they're a bit more lenient on audio quality in the audition than what they would be for a final course, because they're not gonna expect you to go and spend a couple of hundred dollars on a microphone for an audition. But you do need to try and make the audio quality as good as you can by using just a simple dynamic mic or a headset. Um, at the time I used a 30 day demo license of Camtasia. So Camtasia is probably the most common tool that authors use. I'm um, certainly on, on Windows. Um, on Mac, you can either use Camtasia or ScreenFlow. Um, I used to use Camtasia on the Mac. I wasn't quite as happy with it as what I was on Windows, so I now use ScreenFlow, which is a fantastic tool. Um, but you're not limited to those. Some authors will um, edit everything together using either Premiere or Final Cut. It's probably not as common. I think generally you're going to find most people use Camtasia, uh, which is a very easy to use piece of software. And on the Mac, it's kind of split evenly between Camtasia and ScreenFlow. But for the audition process, I managed to use the 30-day demo, uh, which was sufficient. And then when I became an author, I then went on and purchased a better microphone and my own license at Camtasia. I had a few people ask me, you know, does Pluralsight pay for all of your equipment to do this? And the short answer to that is no. Um, there is a small reimbursement they'll do when you um, finish your first course. Uh, but apart from that, I mean, you're effectively an external contractor or consultant working with Pluralsight. So any costs that you incur through making the course are your own costs. So you can't just go and invoice for you know a really expensive microphone and software licenses. You are expected to provide that yourself. But you know, to be honest, I didn't really spend that much. My first microphone cost me about 80 pounds, which is probably 100, $110. And then Camtasia, which I can't remember how much that costs, is probably around a few hundred dollars. I can't remember exactly. Plus, you know, I had a had laptop and monitors already. So it's not a huge barrier of entry in terms of what you need to buy, but you do need to have a half-decent microphone and some software licenses. Currently, I'm using the Rode Podcaster microphone. Um, it's not a particularly expensive microphone, but the quality is very, very good for the price you pay. And it's USB as well, so all of the preamps and the power is all on the mic itself and it just plugs into a USB port. So it's incredibly easy to use, it sounds fantastic and it's not that expensive. So if you're looking to start out, that's kind of a, a good recommendation for a starter mic. Okay, so that's the audition process. So now I want to talk about, you know, the process that you might go through to build a course. Now each author is going to have their own particular ways of doing things. Um, I've got my way of building a course, which is what I'm going to discuss. But that's not the only way, that's just the way I like to do it. So because that's the way I know, that's what I'm going to discuss. You know, various authors have, you know, might have different techniques in how they like to do things. So largely your course production process is going to be split into various stages. You've got your, your planning and pitching, and then you've got your writing and recording, editing, and then any post-production and finish up work before the course is released. If we try and break Pluralsight down into a simple abstraction, so at the top, we have what's called a learning path. Now a learning path might be, you know, you might have a web development learning path or uh, a soft skills learning path as an example. 
The learning path will contain lots of different courses. Now a course is split down into modules. So you can think of modules as like chapters in a book. So you might have four or five chapters that make up that course or four or five modules that make up that course. And then each module is split down into individual clips and a clip might focus on one particular topic at a time. And the reason we do that is, you know, there's various different ways in which people will consume content on Pluralsight. Some people will sit down and watch a course from start to finish. So if the course is three hours long, they'll sit there watching the entire thing as if they're watching a documentary. But also what commonly happens is if someone's got a specific problem that they're trying to address or learn about, then they might zero in on a particular course, go to a certain module, and then just watch a handful of clips which they think are going to solve their problem. So the way you structure a course is quite important because you want people to be able to either just watch it continuously or just dive in to particular pieces of information. And I, I do both. I watch quite a lot of courses on plural sites still, but I also, if I've got anything specific I need to know about, I'll just watch individual clips, like you know, a five minute clip on something. So the first part of the process then is the pitching process. This is where you are letting plural site know about an idea you've got for a course. So generally what I do, I think this is the same for the majority of authors, is I'll write a very simple synopsis, which might be, you know, two or three paragraphs. What's the topic of the course? Who's it aimed at? What particular problems are you trying to solve? And what technologies are you going to use? It's kind of the information that you want to give. So I send that to uh, my assigned editor. And then they take that to the, the curriculum teams within Pluralsight and they discuss it. So it's important to note that every author has an assigned editor or author success manager, as they're now called. And that person is your conduit into the company. So they're the person that you deal with the most. So when you're pitching for courses, you have particular questions that you need answering. Um, you go to your author success manager and then they will help you resolve any issues. And it's a way that works really, really well because Pluralsight is a massive company. You're not going to know everyone there. And it can be quite hard, you know, with a large company to know where you need to send a request to. So your author success manager, it's a bit of a tongue twister, is there to kind of help facilitate that um, process. So if you need some help with some design or artwork, they will put you in touch with the right person to do that. If you have a query, like a legal or copyright query, then they can put you in touch with legal and get those questions answered for you. So your high level synopsis goes to the author success manager. That then gets discussed with you know the various teams of employer sites, and they'll either come back and say, "Yep, we think that's a good idea. You can go ahead to full proposal." They might ask you to tweak the subject slightly, or they might just turn around and say, "You know, we don't have a need for this course at the moment, but maybe try back in six months." So, for me, the vast majority of my courses have been accepted. Um, I've had a few that have been sort of turned down. Uh, one in particular, which is quite interesting because it's a course I'm working on now, I actually pitched about nine months to a year ago and I was, I was told, you know, we don't actually need this right now because we're focusing on some other areas, maybe try again in six months. So when I completed my last course, which was on RabbitMQ and EasyNetQ, I, you know, sent the synopsis across again and said, you know, I'd like to resubmit this idea. And they came back and went, yep, you think it's great, you can go ahead to full proposal. So the full proposal process takes a bit more time. So this is where you are defining what the modules are um, and exactly what you're going to teach in each module, how long you think it's going to be and what the focus of any demos are that you're going to do. So at this point you're putting a lot of thought into how the course is going to be structured and by the time you've written that document you've pretty much mapped out what's going to be in that course. 
still at a fairly high level, but I mean, you can certainly see what the narrative of that course is going to be. So you submit that to the Author Success Manager. Again, it goes back to the curriculum teams. They might come back with a few changes they want you to do, or maybe you know, slightly alter the focus. You know, there's, there's a bit of collaboration backwards and forwards. And then at that point, they'll turn around and say, well, hopefully say, yep, that's great. We're gonna you know, make an offer on it. At which point you get a contract sent through. And then this is where you start talking about you know, financial compensation. Now, I'm not going to discuss specific numbers and I'm not going to talk about viewership numbers because I don't actually think I'm allowed to talk about those, but also financial numbers are kind of personal to me, so I don't really want to discuss it on, a, on an open podcast. But essentially, you're normally given a few options. So there might be um, a completion fee, which you get paid when you've delivered the course, and then a certain percentage for royalties, or there might be an option where you have no completion fee, but a slightly higher percentage for royalties. You know, there's you know, generally a few options and you get to discuss that with them. But typically, you know, there's a small fee which you'll get paid at the end of the course, which kind of compensates your time a little bit. And then there's a percentage royalty. So the way payment works with Pluralsight is it is royalty based. So there's a, every month there's a pot that's allocated towards royalties. I have no idea what the number is for that pot. Um, but then your royalties accumulate based on the number of minutes um, that are played from your courses for that month and then they work out how much that is and then based on your percentage royalty at the end of each month you're assigned um, a dollar amount and then after the end of a calendar quarter you'll then pay those royalties so we get paid every quarter so if you think January, February, March is the first quarter the royalties for that quarter would get paid towards the end of April so that's something to bear in mind you don't get paid continuously each month it's, it's a quarterly royalty okay so once you sign the contract, uh, you'll negotiate a deadline with your success manager. Um, Pluralsight are brilliantly flexible in the amount of time that you need to assign to do this. They, they know that not everyone's going to be working on this full time, that other people have full time jobs. So, you know, they're quite good in regards to that. Typically, when I do a course, it might be, you know, I might assign like a, anywhere between a two to four month deadline on it, depending on how complex the course is. And then at that point, you go ahead and you start constructing the course. So when I start constructing a course, now as I say, every author has different ways of doing this. So you, t you tend to have authors who like to write scripts and you have authors that don't write scripts. And you know, they're the sort of people that can just switch on the microphone and start talking. Um, for something as professional as a plural site course, I can't do that. I mean, I'm doing that now. I'm just, you know, kind of making this up as I go along. You know, this podcast isn't scripted, but for a course, for me, I personally have to script it. Now, I find that for roughly about a two-hour course, you're probably looking at around twenty-five to 30,000 words, thereabouts, which, if you think about it, is the size of a small book. I mean, that's about an 80 to 100-page book. So that kind of gives you an idea of the amount of work that goes into doing this. So the way I personally tackle this is I set up a notebook on OneNote, I have different folders for each module. And then I write each module as a, as a continuous script. You know, starting from where you introduce yourself and then you, you talk about what you're gonna be discussing in that module. And then I just write the entire narrative for that script. And that's probably the longest part of putting a course together is preparing that script. Generally you work module by module. Um, so you'll script record, edit, submit a module, then you wait for your feedback from peer review, because everything has to be peer reviewed. And then once you've been given the, the go ahead, 
that that one's okay. You, know, you might have a few tweaks and changes to do, but once you give them the go-ahead, I'll then go ahead and record the next module. Last thing you want to do is record the entire course, and then you know it comes back from peer review that you have to go and change a load of stuff. So it's better just to work you know, module by module and submit each module at a time. So the script I write in OneNote. Um, some people use Evernote, some people use Word. It doesn't really matter as long as you're writing a good cohesive script. Once I've done that, I then go ahead and start producing all of the slides. So there's a specific slide template that we use. Uh, we have an icon library with hundreds and hundreds of icons that we can use to help us out. And there's also specific fonts that we have to install. So the slide deck is you know, part of Pluralsight's branding. So you have to make sure you use the correct slides and fonts and everything is done sensitively within their brand. But I produce all the slides. And then what I do is for each slide, I paste the script for those slides into the notes view in PowerPoint. So what that means is when I'm recording, I'll have Camtasia or ScreenFlow recording the slides off of one screen, but I can see presenter view on another screen where I have the script in front of me. And that's what I read through when I'm recording my course. Some authors do it differently. Some might you know, just have a Word document in front of them. I know some authors like to actually print the script out and have it in front of them or have it on an iPad. You know, it doesn't really matter. I use PowerPoint notes just because I find that easier for me. So the recording process, I generally do fairly early in the morning, if I can. So around eight o'clock in the morning now. The reason I do that is I've rented an office. So I work in an office, but sometimes the people in the office above, you can hear creaking floorboards as they're walking around which can make the recording process a bit harder. So I go and do it early in the morning and spend the rest of the day editing. So the actual process of recording the clips and modules is fairly straightforward. It's, you know, you use Camtasia or ScreenFlow to record a screen. Whilst you're recording into a microphone, you know, you're flicking through the slides, recording your narration. So that's fairly straightforward now. The hardest part is, as I said before, is getting that kind of vibrancy in your voice so that you don't sound like a robot, which is very hard to do when you're reading a script. It takes a lot of practice. But also, um, if you make a mistake in your narration, you don't want to stop the recording and start the whole thing again. So what I do is I will record. If I make a mistake, I make a loud popping sound from my mouth, which spikes the audio. I wait a couple of seconds and then I say the line again. Now, where this is important is when you re redo that line, you need to say it in the same style and intonation as what you did previously. So that when you cut out the bits that were no good, it still sounds like a fluid narration. So if you listen to any of my courses, you know, I might have say a clip that's 10 minutes long. Now, when I actually recorded that clip, I might have actually had 25 minutes of material, but then I cut out all the bits where I got tongue-tied or I just made a mistake, or if there was noise in the corridor or the office next to me and I had to stop temporarily. So there's lots of things that can affect your recording. But when I cut out all those bad bits, the, the narration seems fluid and continuous. And the reason it sounds like that is because I've put a lot of practice into how I deliver my lines. Now, I've had some people um, that I've helped go through the audition process previously um, who sadly didn't make it through the audition process but one of the problems with their narration was because they had a different style of voice whenever they made a mistake 
whenever they cut the, the bad bits out, it sounded like a deliberate cut because the style of voice sounded differently. So that's something to bear in mind. It's, it's kind of a bit like acting in a way. You're, you're effectively doing voice acting. And as you cut bad bits of your narration out, you need it to sound fluid. And that is by far the hardest part of the process. Okay, so once you've recorded your footage, you might have what you think is going to be a 10 minute clip, but you might record 20 minutes of audio and slides. What you then want to do is go and edit all that together. So you're cutting out all of the bad bits of narration. You're running noise reduction on the recording to get rid of any background hisses or hums. In between sentences and certain words, if you've got any like mouth noises or you know heavy breathing as you take a gulp of air, you want to try and remove as many of those as possible especially sort of mouth clicks and pops, because it's not particularly pleasant if someone's listening on headphones. So you try and remove some of that. And then by the end of that, you have a clip that's sounding hopefully fluid, nice and clean, no noise. You export the clip to the settings that Pluralsight want you to use, which, you know, for example, could be 720p, 30 frames a second. You submit the clips for that module. There's a portal that we have. We upload everything uh, along with the slides and um, any source code for any demos. And then that goes to your editor and your technical editor, who will then go and do QA and organize peer review. So the QA process is making sure that you followed all of the technical rules. Um, that could be anything from, have you used correct title case on titles? Are you using the correct fonts? Are the slides readable? If you've used any clip art or stock library images, they'll want to make sure that you've actually got permission to use those images. So either you know free for creative use images or you need to sh show proof of um, purchase for any images that you've purchased. So they'll do that. The peer review people will actually be looking at the contents of your course. You know, does it make sense? Can they learn something from it? Is it factually correct? Um, if there's any issues with that, then you might have to go and change or redo part of your module. Um, I think I've been fairly lucky in the 15 courses I've done so far. So I've only ever had to do one redo, which required me to re-record one sentence. So I've been fairly lucky in that regard, but I have had to fix you know, um, title case mistakes on titles before. That's quite a common one to fix. Um, but, so we've talked about the recording process. Um, majority of the video is done to slides in PowerPoint or Keynotes. Sometimes you have to record demos as well. So if you're doing a software development course, you're probably gonna record demos of what you're doing. Lots of different ways of doing that. So if it's a coding demo, some authors like to type the code out and talk at the same time. I tried that, but I could never make it sound good because I find it very difficult to type code and talk about it at the same time. So the technique I used is actually to reveal finished code and then discuss what that code does. And then in Camtasia, I do um, annotations like boxes and arrows, which appear on the screen just to highlight the bits I'm talking about. So that's a style that works well for me. Other authors do live coding didn't work for me, so I've got my own particular style. So every author kind of has their own unique way of doing things, which is good. Pluralsight encourages that because they want a bit of the personality and a bit of different style for the author to come out in the videos. So again, technical demos are QA'd and peer-reviewed, just as the same as narrated slides. So when that comes back from peer review, you'll be given a series of feedback. You'll be told what they like, which is always nice to hear. And you'll be given a list of things which you might need to and be aware of for the next module. You don't necessarily have to fix them now unless you want to, but you have to be aware of it for the next module. There'll be a list of things which you have to fix if, if there are any. So there'll be things, you know, they won't approve the module until you fix, you know, this list of things. 
And then there might be a few tweaks uh, which the QA team might do on your behalf. So once you've done that and you've got through that module, you then go ahead and start producing the next module in exactly the same way. And you keep on iterating until you've done the whole course. Once a course has been submitted, um, it goes through final checks with um, Pluralsight. There's a few kind of post-production tasks that you need to do. So one of them is you need to script and record audio for a trailer. So if you've ever watched a Pluralsight course, it's kind of like a one to two minute animated intro that plays at the beginning. Those animated intros can actually be watched by anyone who hasn't got a subscription. So they're kind of like a trailer for the course. So in that trailer, you need to talk about what the course is, who it's aimed at, a bit like your original pitch, but there's a certain format you have to follow when you record it. And then there's a team at Pluralsight which will produce this kind of nice animated intro which goes around your narration. So you have to produce that. You have to write short and long descriptions of your course, which are what appear on the site. And you also, for each module and each clip, you have to write assessment questions. So for each module, as a viewer watches it, they can take assessments just to help solidify their learning of the course. So it's the author's responsibility to write those questions. Some authors do it per module as they submit modules. Um, I tend to wait until I've done the whole course and then I'll spend a day just writing all of the questions. Once all that's done, you know, it then goes into a queue and then you'll be given a date for when your course is going to be released. So I've had some courses get released literally within days and I've had some courses where it might have been a couple of weeks. But generally within a few weeks your course is going to be out. So Pluralsight actually provides us with uh, some pretty good tools for tracking what's going on. So it's an analytics dashboard that we use. And what this will do is for each course, you know, we can see for each month how many hours have been viewed. And um, we can also see how many unique visitors have been watching our course, which is fantastic. And we can also see where our course ranks in the overall library, which is really good. So generally what I might do is the first half of the month, I don't really look at the analytics. Um, towards the back half of the month, I'll go in there and I'll start looking at, you know, the number of hours for that month. Because as you start getting to the end of the month, you can start seeing roughly what your number of hours is going to be. And then you, you kind of get quite good at predicting roughly how much that's going to equate to as a payment. Um, but, you know, payments can go up, they can go down, depending on, you know, how many people watch your course. So it's never a complete known quantity how many royalties you're going to get. But after a while, you do kind of get a feel for roughly how well it's going to do. When a course comes out, you normally have, for the first couple of months, there's kind of a, a big jump because it's a, a newer course. And then it kind of tails off and goes into a long tail, sort of after about two to three months. But typically what you'll see is on the dashboard at the end of the month or about 10 days into the following month, they start to lock in the numbers for the previous month. So you see what your world is going to be. And then the month after the calendar quarter, that's when your royalties get dispersed to you. So if you are considering doing this full time, you need to bear in mind there is a latency between you getting paid your royalties. Now, Pluralsight always pays on time, consistently, every time. I've never had any invoicing issues with Pluralsight at all, which is brilliant because anyone who works with themselves can know that one of the biggest frustrations of working with any company is invoicing. But Pluralsight are fantastic. They pay on time when they say they're going to pay which I'm very grateful for if there's any Pluralsight people listening to this. So I've had a lot of questions about, you know, can you make a living being a Pluralsight author? So I've already talked about how the royalty process works and kind of the frequency of that gets paid, but can you make a living doing this? 
Short answer is yes, but don't go into it thinking it's going to be a get-rich-quick scheme, because it's not. Building courses to this level of quality for Pluralsight takes a lot of work, as you've sort of seen from what I've just discussed. Now, the amount of money you might get from making a course entirely depends on the subject that you're writing it on. Um, so when I started writing for Pluralsight, I kind of said to myself, my own personal rules, I'm only going to do stuff that actually interests me. I'm not going to go chasing what I think are big topics. Because if you're genuinely interested in what you're teaching, then it's going to show in the end result. I mean, I could have gone off and you know spent time learning Angular or React and then maybe done some courses on that, which would have done very well. But they're quite high demand, high competition areas. And you know I'm not going to be able to do a course as good as someone who's been working with Angular for five years, for example. But you know, it entirely depends on the subject that you're doing. So I personally tend to do courses which I think are going to be more evergreen, which means that they're going to have a longer life in the library. Which is something you need to be, you know, be aware of. If you're doing something that's absolute cutting edge, bleeding edge technology, the chances of things changing in your course becoming out of date is going to be higher, which means you either have to retire a course or redo the whole course or parts of it, which some authors have to do. Um, I try and do things which are a bit more evergreen. So I've got a mixture of software development and security based courses. And I've also done quite a few soft skills and sort of personal skills courses because that's kind of an area that I'm interested in. Um, but over time, you know, at the moment I've released 15 courses and at the moment I'm now working for myself and Pluralsight isn't the only source of income I have, but it's one of the larger ones. So can you make a living out of doing Pluralsight courses? Absolutely. You know, are you gonna, you know, earn huge amounts of money just by having a handful of courses you know maybe but generally probably not you know it's one of those things where the more effort and more content you put out the bigger the gains are going to be but I spent three and a half years doing this in the evening so I sacrificed a lot of my personal time with my family to make this happen because when I discussed it with my wife we thought you know this actually could be a really good opportunity it's worth putting the effort in but it was a lot of effort and a lot of work so short answer to that is yes you can make a living but you need to have a lot of content um, that you work on. Right, so those are the main things I wanted to talk about in this. There's a few um, additional questions which didn't quite fit the narrative, so I shall just quickly go through those now before signing off. So the first one is, with Udemy, um, you can upload the same courses onto other platforms. So for example, you could do a course on Udemy and then maybe upload it to Skillshare and maybe teachable.com. Can you do this with Pluralsight too? Short answer, no you can't. So think of working with Pluralsight more like a book deal. So you know, if you have a book deal and you publish a book, you're not gonna then go and publish the same book somewhere else because the publishing company owns the copyright to that book. Exactly the same with Pluralsight, you are building content for Pluralsight. So they basically own the rights to distribute that content. So no, you can't go and upload it anywhere else. That's, that's a definite no-no. Uh, another question which I thought was quite interesting, does being a Pluralsight author get you straight into conference speaking gigs? Again, no. Being a Pluralsight author doesn't guarantee you anything. Um, it, it might help. You know, if you're seen as an authority in a particular area and you apply to do a talk on that sort of conference, you know, it's something that could certainly be weighed up. But no, it's, it's not a fast pass into speaking at conferences. Certainly not. Again, speaking at conferences is something that's time consuming and requires a lot of hard work. And the way you do that is 
by doing lots of talks. So my own particular journey into doing conferences was I spent a couple of years just doing the user group circuit. Very small little focused you know, software development user groups around the country. That helped me build up my confidence in doing talks. And then you know that kind of helped me get a bit more well known and also it helped me with, uh, with applying to conferences. Okay, so next question. Do you worry about running out of things to teach? That's a great question. Um, not really. I mean, I've been working in industry for 25 years nearly. So I've done a lot of stuff. You know, I've been a leader of software development, you know, all, all various stages of software development, lots of different technologies. So do I worry about running out of things to teach? No, because I'm also constantly learning and applying my skills into different areas as well. So I'm always learning new things. My skills are in you know learning something complicated, but then explaining it to people so that they can understand it. So that's something that I think I, that's kind of where my main skill is. I'm very good at explaining things to people. Um, so no, I, I don't worry about that. Uh, last question uh, before we wrap up. So do you ever feel out of your depth? Um, when I first started working for Pluralsight, yeah, I did actually, because you know I was the people that I kind of looked up to as authors whose courses I used to watch. I was now on an equal footing with them, you know, producing content for that uh, for Pluralsight. So yeah, I was kind of terrified, and I did feel a bit out of my depth because you know I've got to learn video editing, scripting, recording, and all of these sorts of things. And as I mentioned earlier, when I produced the first course, that course was called Developer to Manager. After I submitted that course and finished it, I did actually seriously question whether I wanted to do another one. And it turns out that's quite a common feeling with new authors. I'm not alone in that in that thought. But I persevered. I said, well, I may as well do a second one because I've invested all this time into it. And then I carried on doing that. And you know, now the actual course construction process to me is kind of second nature. So the, the mechanics of recording and editing and submitting, writing questions, it's kind of just what I do. I can, you know, that's kind of the easy bit now. So for me, you know, the harder bits are, you know, defining what it is you're going to teach, writing all the demos, writing the script, making sure it's engaging, that you're teaching the right things at the right level. You know, are you pitching this at new developers? Is it experienced developers, business leaders? Those are kind of the hard bits, but I don't really feel out of my depth anymore, whereas I did towards the start, but that's quite common and natural. So if you're thinking of becoming a Pluralsight author and you're worried about imposter syndrome and feeling out of your depth, you're not alone. But what I advise you to do is if you are, or you do become an author, chat to other authors on the uh, Pluralsight Author Slack group. You know, send me a message and I can help talk through it with you. So that's it. So thank you for listening to this episode. I thought it was worth doing a bonus episode just because I'd received so many questions about the whole Pluralsight authoring process. So hopefully you found it interesting. Um, we'll be back um, with our next normal episode um, soon um, with me and Kevin. And thank you very much, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.